I would like to thank the NGV and their staff for giving my culture a voice here in Melbourne. And that's really the, also the main topic of the whole period in Vienna around 1900, to give the individual a voice. And it's a permanent struggle still, still today in Vienna that the individual gets a voice. And myself being a typical product of that culture by being a mixture of Dutch, Danish, Jewish, Czech, Russian <laughs> ethnicities. Uh, my talk, uh, this 30 minutes talk, it's going to be more like an autobahn than a path <laughs> through, through the subject. Uh, well, after the middle of the 19th century, Vienna undergoes a tremendous change in economical and social uh, terms. And these uh, changes really culminate uh, towards the end of the 19th century uh, in, the, in a situation which you can compare very much to a pressure cooker, where the pressure builds up and build up, builds up until the pot can't take it anymore and it has to explode. And this explosion is really the reason of this enormous fertile creativity that happens in Vienna. Uh, giving the individual a voice, that's in fact, that's the topic of modernism. Uh, but before you can give the individual a voice, you need to be, become conscious of your identity itself. And this process happens in Vienna in a, in a multitude of aspects. First of all, in a national, in a bourgeois, in a Jewish, in a gender sense, and also in a sexual sense. Why in a national sense? Vienna is the capital of a multinational or multi-ethnic multi uh, empire consisting of 11 different ethnicities. I don't know if you can clearly read the map, or I don't have to explain. <laughs> so, and uh, the, uh, the German ethnicity being the ruling ethnicity of the country. Secondly, the bourgeois identity. The bourgeoisie had it very, very difficult in Vienna to be, to get a voice. It's really only after the revolution of 1848 that it, it gets a voice. It's not like in the Anglo-Saxon world where you can take this for granted. And it's still a struggle today. It, uh, the leading voice was always the voice of the, the court and the aristocracy. Thirdly, the Jewish identity, uh, uh, the, the Jewish population of the empire only start slowly getting civil rights after the revolution from, of 1848, and it's only in 1860 that they finally get full civil rights. Uh, Jewish population starts to assimilate into the, into the Gentile society, and with that assimilation, of course, then the problems of, uh, of anti-Semitism comes up. In, in Austria, Hungary. And uh, the Jewish population then is struggling to 
deal with their identity, where, where do we belong, really. There's a wonderful story, for example. Uh, I hope I'm not getting too long now. <laughs> but it's a good story explaining the situation. Uh, we have the, the, the funeral of a soldier of the Austrian army, and you have a representative of the Czech, the Hungarian, the Italian, and so on, ethnicity. You have, or, and you have the Czech who takes the shovel with the earth to put it into the grave, and he says, this is for Bohemia or Moravia. Then the Italian comes and gives the earth into the tomb and says, this is for Italy, and so on. And then finally, a Jewish soldier comes and he says, this is for Austria. The gender identity, uh, with, this is not something that only happens in, in Austria, it happens in, in, the, in the whole Western world. Uh, women become much more incorporated into the public workforce and they also demand to have a voice. And finally, the, sex, uh, the se sexual identities and the identity of the self, which is so important, and really Vienna is one of the birthplaces where the self is allowed to step into the public and into the outside world, of course, with the findings of Sigmund Freud. And you can imagine when those private worlds, uh, formerly private worlds, meet the public world, this creates a big, big problem, especially when you have lived so long with traditional social behavior, where there was a strict difference between the public and the private. And one of the main or the fashionable disease of the period is nervousness. <laughs> because people cannot deal with this new unity where the inside world uh, uh, meets the outside world. And if you continue that thought, you know, in, in terms of architecture, in terms of modern architecture, the ideal of modern architecture with the steel and glass buildings is to really to create a merger between those two worlds. 1857 is a very crucial date for the development of the city of Vienna when the Emperor Francis Joseph decides to have the old city walls uh, pulled down, you, here, you, you have the, 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 the city of Vienna, that was the city of Vienna. All these were the suburbs and little villages outside which did not belong administrative-wise to the city. He decides to pull, uh, the emperor decides to pull down the walls and integrate all the suburbs and the little villages outside. So Vienna gets the possibility to grow really into one big urban center. And like that, Vienna is being uh, changed from a pure imperial court residence into a financial and economical center for the first time. This is also the period, of course, of the railway system coming into and industrialization in Vienna. And you can also see, for example, the Danube, which we still struggle today to integrate into the city. Oops, sorry. Lies far outside the city here with hundreds of little side arms. And it's only in 1860 that the Danube is then being regulated into one big uh, flow and that the city can also expand towards there. And it's really, uh, Otto Wagner, the architect, we 
for me, my big hero in Vienna, 1900, the father of modernism, who works with the city of Vienna to develop a new urban plan for the city, integrating the newly regulated Danube River into the city. Uh, very, very fortunate, and you can see some in the corridors of the exhibition to have a series, I think these are thousands of photographs by August Stauder, who took pictures of the radically changing city of Vienna, from really like, as you can see, these are little village, like a village character. Behind it are the big apartment buildings rising. Also, this kind of situation, of course, creates nervousness. Huh? It's in the human condition that we don't like change because it comes with insecurity. And then, uh, so the city of Vienna in 1857 has 480,000 uh, inhabitants. By 1869, after the walls were de demolished, it already has 600,000. And by the end of the century, in 1890, it has already over 1 million people. And finally, just before the outbreak of the world, First World War, it has over 2 million inhabitants. And you, uh, if you imagine, 65% of the inhabitants were non-natives. And today, we have, I think, 1.8 million inhabitants only. So in 19, 1911, Wagner reconsiders his urban planning, uh, taking into consideration the rapid growth of the city and develops a whole system of rings, uh, a circular streets and radial streets for the city. Wagner is the one who gives the city a new modern face through his town planning and especially also through his teachings at the Academy of Fine Arts, where we, he holds the chair of architecture from 1894 on. I'm showing you just two uh, uh, pre uh, presentational drawings for, uh, this, uh, for the new, uh, what we call metro or tube system of the city of Vienna, which still today works as it did then. Wagner also, uh, he really defines what is the modern style. And uh, why is he so modern? Because he's the first one to define the modern style not with the help of a shape or a form, but with the notion of function. He says the modern style is the functional style. And he creates, through his teaching and his career, he would create prototypes for specific tasks in architecture, like the modern church, the modern bank, the modern apartment building, the modern suburban villa, as we have it here. Wagner's own villa from uh, the Villa Wagner One, with both buildings still exist, from 1886, and only something like, uh, what is it, 26 years later, his second villa, when he remarried for his second wife. And you can see the enormous changes through which he went stylistically. Uh, in a way, there are enormous uh, stylistic changes, but on the other sense, there's not much change because the main idea always stays the same. And this main idea is for him that something functional can, uh, un, un, unfunctional cannot be beautiful. Wagner comes out of the eclectic historic uh, uh, period, starting with 
Renaissance, but already in, 1880, in the 1880s, he says, we have to break away from the Renaissance style and use a free Renaissance. So this is the first sign of individuality after using all the old styles, which again, you know, these were the styles of, a, of the aristocracy and of the court, which were not the styles really of the bourgeoisie. So what we have typically here is a Villa Palladiana uh, of the 16th century, and then he comes to the solution of really the completely unadorned functional facade and the pure cube. Or the same thing with the apartment building. You, uh, the, the ones of you who have been to Vienna, we don't have the tradition of small individual houses, but it's mainly big apartment building, apartment blocks. Uh, one building he did in 1877 on the rink, which is basically, again, a Renaissance building, but with very interesting new structural ideas, like the way he frames it here with these pilasters. Uh, and then, uh, 20, 20 years later, his revolutionary buildings on the Wienzeile, the so-called Majolica house on the left, and a second house on the right. Wagner also, uh, how do you say, acted as a developer. He would buy the land and, like, and would see the potential of new areas in the city, and would develop it, and like that he could realize his artistic ideas. Well, you can, if you see those two buildings, you know, there were alien elements in the city, especially if you look at the building on the left, which is built at the same time in a neo-Baroque style. One of the new things also is that these facades, they have color. They have, they are very, they are individuals, these facades. And this is something that in the traditional uh, aristocratic society, uh, you were not interested in the individual behavior or the individual feelings of a person. This is something you kept, kept for yourself. And uh, we're, we're still, a little bit later, we're going to talk about the idea of color. Just see the two differences. And another difference, which he introduces into the facade is he abolishes the hierarchy of the different floors. All the floors are the same democratic visual, have the same democratic visual appearance. There's no more use of columns, for example. The masterpiece of modern architecture in Vienna, the postal savings banks, which where you can see some elements from it in the exhibition with this, it's like an architecture parlante where with all these bolts, it's like uh, telling you it's a safe deposit box. And then in 1911, again, he develops a small area in the 7th district, and he builds this apartment building where he has his, uh, his, last, uh, his own last apartment in it, where you, you get even a stronger simplification. Uh, now, the, one of the great achievements of Wagner who defines modernity and he publishes something like a recipe how to get to the modern shape and he structures it according to four points, really like a cooking recipe. Uh, is first you have to define the function of what you want to de uh, design. Secondly, you choose the technique how to, in which it should be executed. The third one, the material which fits the technique and the function. And the fourth point, 
the last, least important, he says, the shape comes on its own. And that's why he is so modern. And here's a wonderful example, a table which is also in the exhibition for the daily newspaper office, Die Zeit. And it, it was like a key moment when I read Tim Bonihadi's book on the Gallia family. I was not aware of the fact that the Gallias invested in Die Zeit also. And again, it proved that it is a very tightly social, knitted net in which these modern ideas uh, grow in Vienna. Uh, and what is this table all about? It's really, uh, he gives the functional structure of the table an aesthetic, uniting aesthetic with function. And just on the right-hand side, it's, I'm always, since I'm an art historian, I'm, I'm interested how it relates to something previously. I'm showing you a Spanish table from the 16th century, which is basically the same thing. Or really the highlight of his uh, functional furniture is the stool for the postal savings bank, which is nothing else, else than four tubular steel circle, uh, bentwood circles screwed together. And where the screws appear, he covers them with alu small aluminum uh, circles. Out of the Wagner School come one of the most important members of the future secession movement in Vienna. The secession uh, was founded in 1897 by a group of different artists like painters, sculptors, architects. The first president of the secession was Gustav Klimt. Another founding member was the architect Josef Hoffmann and the painter Kohlmann Moser. This young artist realized that Austria was lagging dramatically behind in its artistic development. And they saw that somewhere else outside Austria, uh, modernism already had a voice. And so the secession at the beginning really uh, worked as some kind of a catalyst to bring these modern ideas to Austria. They exhibit for the first time the French post-impressionists, the Belgian symbolists, and so on, the Japanese, uh, Japanese art. And of course, uh, the, the secession also wanted to have a visual voice in the city of Vienna. And in 1898, they built their own building, which you can see here. And again, you know, this was like an alien descending on the city, especially, I love this picture, because it's like, you know, landed in a shtetl. <laughs> and this is five minutes from the opera. Accordingly, it was received by the population. It was uh, named or compared to an Assyrian public toilet, or the tomb of the Mahdi, and so on. Or then finally, because it was just next to the big vegetable market, it was referred as the gilded cabbage with the dome. You see it in his presence, present glory with the regilded dome. What the secession wanted to create, it was really their aim, was a national, and that's very, people never talk about that, and it's so important, a national bourgeois modern style. And at the beginning, as I said, they were depending from outside sources, uh, and that's why at the beginning, all the ornament looks curvilinear, because that had been developed already in Belgium and 
and in England, uh, and, and, in, uh, and in France. Uh, the other big achievement of the secession, or the, what they propagated, was the unity of the arts, to abolish the separation between the so-called high or the fine arts, thank you, and the low or decorative art, something that they took over from the English arts and crafts movement. And through this unity of the arts, they developed something very special, which Vienna is, becoming is then becoming famous for, is the concept of the Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art. And the idea behind it was that you could save the world through artistic expression, to make the world a better place through artistic expression by bringing the decorative arts, uh, by joining the decorative arts with the fine arts and like that have artistic expression in daily life to be surrounded by it. So for example, this is a very interesting document. It's a stationary box uh, of the Wittgenstein family where you have two artists working together like the figurative part designed by Colin Moser, signed by him, and the ornamental part signed by Josef Hoffmann. And the ornament becomes something like the billboard for the new movement. And every new style, of course, we always associate style with ornament. Every style has its own ornament. And so the secession strives to develop its own ornament and like that create a modern style. And that's where then immediately the criticism of Laws steps in. Laws is not completely against the ornament. We always try to simplify things. But he is against the fact to create a modern, modern style through a modern ornament. Because the notion of style in itself is already not modern. But I come to that a little bit later. Or just another example now, uh, the notion of color. Color becomes uh, very, very important always in times of radical changes in society. Uh, color is a way to express individuality and individual feelings. In these times of changes, humanity steps out of the security of the established norm and steps into the insecurity of feelings. And, for the, and that always happens also when the individual becomes important. When we have to, for the first time that we're familiar with that is during the Rococo period, then the second time around 1900, and the third time in postmodernism. It's when the notion of function is being redefined and feeling becomes part of the notion of function. And I'm showing you here just an example. Today it's already faded. Uh, of the facade of the secession with the gold, the blue, and the door of the secession itself is in bright green. Before that, you have to imagine the interiors and everything is mainly brown, black, dark. The secession, secession brings Macintosh to Vienna, exhibits him, and he becomes really the big hero for the whole movement, not Ashby or William Morris, because Ashby is not really part of the arts and crafts movement. Ashby is not interested in the concept of truth to material. And there we have very interesting also 
two worlds that meet, the Catholic world and the Protestant world. In the Catholic world, where material itself is not a value, like in the Protestant world, in the Catholic world, material only becomes valuable through the artistic transformation. And that's why Macintosh becomes the big hero. Uh, another important source of inspiration is the Biedermeier period. Biedermeier is being, being discovered during that period for the first time as a style. It's something again that reoccurs in the history of the humankind. One generation creates something, the children hate it, and the grandchildren <laughs> rediscover it. And why do they, until then, Biedermeier was considered the epitome of bad taste, petty bourgeoisness. As the term already says, Bieder means petty bourgeois, and Meyer is like Smith. Uh, and why do this, uh, does this generation then rediscover Biedermeier? Because they say during the Biedermeier time, it was the last time that the formal expression co uh, correlated to society. Very different from the eclectic period. And I'm showing you a piece, just one example of Biedermeier furniture from 1810 and the Hoffman table from 1905. It's the simple functional shape. And that's the source why Viennese furniture look geometric. And it's not only in Austria that it happens that they ask themselves, where do we come from, as it does in, in times of changes. The same thing happens in France. They ask themselves, where we, when were we the last time great? And they define it with the period of, the Louis, of Louis XV, of the Rococo. And that's why the French Art Deco looks, uh, Nouveau looks like that, and the Viennese looks like that. <laughs> so simple. <laughs> Just one example, really the most important example of the total work was the Beethoven exhibition uh, that the secession mounted in 1902, the, its 14th uh, exhibition. This has to be very fast now, sorry. <laughs> Hoffman designs the architecture, and Klimt designs the frieze. And the frieze really uh, exemplifies this idea of the arts and crafts movement of saving the world through the arts. This Apollo representing a poetry representing the arts. Another new thing is that nudity will be uh, expressed for its own sake, not used anymore for to, as an allegory or a symbol. Like you have here this early uh, gouache by Klimt from 1896, uh, an allegory of sculpture. Well, then 1899, he paints his famous Nuda Veritas, the naked truth. As, as you can see, sexuality being expressed for sexuality. <laughs> or then also even this, even photography becomes part of the art scene, the first time that photography, which until then was considered just a me mechanical reproductive medium, becomes an artistic expression it's like that you can paint with the camera through new printing processes. <coughs> or then an example just for the liberation of the movement with the new reform dress, where the, uh, the dress doesn't give the body the shape anymore, but the body gives the, uh, 
to dress the shape, also an expression of individuality. And just comparing it with the fashion around uh, the, the late 18th century, which they referred to also at the time. Or uh, also an expression of individuality, the free expression, exp da expression dance, as uh, exemplified by a great Wiesenthal dance of the Blue Danube. Uh, uh, this dance form was introduced in Vienna by Isidore Duncan, who also was a client of the Wiener Werkstätte. There are lots of, uh, how do you say, Querverbindungen, uh, cross uh, something here, yeah. <laughs> in the exhibition. Uh, for example, Grete Wiesendahl is the sister-in-law of Lilith Lang, for whom Kokoschka did the, the skirt in the exhibition. Or then the, the most inner fears are allowed into the open, and Alfred Kubin is one example who really expresses those fears that are allowed into the open. Or then uh, Oskar Korkoschka in uh, comparison to Klimt, who really lets the inside of the personality out these people become extremely vulnerable in their appearance. By, uh, by 1902, Vienna has achieved its own, uh, its own uh, stylistic expression. I'm showing you here some exam ex examples, which you also can see in the exhibition. Sorry, this is very fast now. By 1903, out of the secession of the, uh, the secessionist artists, uh, Josef Hoffmann and Koloman Moser, with the help of the Jewish in, in the, uh, textile industrialist Fritz Wander, for the form the Wiener Werkstätte, modeled on the, on the English Guild of Handicrafts, to have under one roof artists and craftsmen designing quality handcrafted mm -hmm. objects. And this, for the, and this is something new, the craftsmen get their own voice by Moser designing the, the yeah. By 1905, it even becomes clearer their formal expression, this radical geometric style. And just as an example here, how the Wiener Werkstatt really designs every aspect of daily life from the architecture to the furniture, to dress, to postcards, jewelry. Uh, uh, Adolf Loos, who is uh, really the, the big opponent of this idea of the total work of art, because he says the total work of art really uh, doesn't help the individual, it terrorizes the individual. <laughs> and it's so wonderful, it's in this exhibition that you have the same family commissioning, oops, Hoffman and Loos. Hmm? Just an example, Hoffman's uh, dining room for the Palais Stocklet with the mosaic frieze designed by Klimt here. And an apartment, the dining room of the Boscovitz apartment by Loos. Loos reusing old styles. And th that's the interesting thing. When you look at it, you don't think this is modern. This is old fashioned. But with Loos, it's not about the form, it's about an attitude. Hmm? And what 
really very basic explanation. What Hoffman, the Werkstätte does, they take an old content and give it a new dress. While Laws questions the content and the shape is not, or the dress is not important. He's asking for a modern new being. Uh, just two examples, you know, it's very, uh, Laws and Hoffman, and with Laws' chair, it's very difficult to define that as a typical Laws design just with art historical terms. There are also two camps, you know, you have the Hoffman and Klimt camp, and the other opposed camp is Kokoschka and Laws. And then by, by 1907, 1908, the scene changes again. Things become much more ornamental, much more neoclassical. Like a wonderful example for that is the Gallia apartment. And then by after 1910, towards the 1920s, we have this very ornamental, very individualistic, expressive style. And for me, uh, we're at the end nearly. <laughs> for me, I never understood this, you know? How could this happen after the things around 1903-1905? Although for me, I, I understood this is quality, but why, how did it get together? And the answer is that people like Peche, who is really the big designer of the period, this is the next generation. The war against eclecticism has been won. That's not, a, a, a consideration anymore. And they can, can go on with their individual uh, artistic expression. And you might think, you know, this is anti-modern. But the fact that you have two different possibilities to, choo to choose from is modern. Hmm? Amen. <laughs>